I pull away from it, lose that chunk of leg, but have this window of escape where I'm just focused on trying to get to the beach. And I swim as hard as I can, only focused on getting to the sand. Probably only get about 20 metres further in and have this thought, which is terrifying, of is this shark going to come back a second time? The only thing more terrifying than that thought is looking over your shoulder and actually seeing it come back. The pain I had by the time I got to the beach was in my stomach. It was actually my organs starting to shut down during blood loss. You know, you're losing a lot of energy and you have that thought, which is, is this what it feels like to die? You can't prepare for that. And there's no telling what that is actually supposed to feel like. People don't fail by aiming too high and missing. They fail by aiming too low and hitting. I realised that I did have a choice to make. We have these choices all the time. It's to either be defined by what has happened to us and to look at it and say, you know, poor me, like this sucks and part of life now, or to look at what is a negative situation almost as an opportunity. It might suck now, but what can I do to try my best to overcome that? My name is Brett Kennellan and this is Life, Money and Love. Just quickly before we get started, guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast, can I please ask that you consider leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you've been listening. It really helps the podcast grow. All right, here we go. We've got a very special episode today. It's a little bit different um, to, to most of the ones we have on, but we have uh, Brett Canellan, otherwise known as Shark Boy. Uh, a crazy, crazy story, inspirational story um, that I'm really keen to unpack it and talk about. Um, on the 30th of March, 2016, Brett came face to face with the shark and obviously lived to tell the tale. Um, so I really want to talk about all of that. Um, and before we get started, what I've done, I obviously do a lot of research. I had a re- lot of fun researching you. Just released a film less than two weeks ago, Attacking Life, available on stand now. So honestly, I'd go check that out. One of the best uh, feature length docos I've watched in a long, long time. Super entertaining, went really quick. So congrats on that. And thanks for, for coming in. I'm really excited to talk about your journey and all the shifts and changes that have come since then. Man, that's a really, really good intro. <laughs> it's, it's not often you get someone get the trifecta of the, pronouncing the name right, summarising the story in less than five minutes and then, <laughs> and then actually paying attention to something like the doco. So it's great. Well yeah, <laughs> no, it was good. Um, I, I, I cheated. I, I wrote your name phonetically because <laughs> you, as I would read it, I would say, Connellan. Yeah. But then I heard people say it and I heard it both ways. I'm going to look up what's the real way to say it. So that's that's what research does. Um, (laughs) But obviously we're going to speak a lot about your journey, what actually happened that day and everything that you've gone through physically, emotionally, mentally to to obviously recover and then find this new purpose uh, and excitement for life. But before we jump into that, just paint this picture for us. What was life like? growing up as a young bred and, and kind of what, what were you doing before that fateful afternoon almost seven years ago? Uh, yeah, my, my life was, I mean, I grew up in Kayama, so very much a, a coast kid. Um, my early days always spent in and around the ocean. Um, I picked up surfing at the age of 11 and from that point it was, that was all I cared about, um, whether it be just having fun in the ocean, surfing, doing doing it competitively like my my life from the moment I picked up surfing was just a hundred I dove straight into it it was all I cared about all I wanted to do and that kind of showed later as I went through school um, continued competing continued surfing but always wanted to kind of go in the direction of surfing and always had the dream of you know trying to do what everyone wants to do when you're a young young kid and you surf you know being professional making the world tour and stuff like that but always wanted to be somewhere in that space. So I set myself up if the professional thing didn't work that you know, I had a job somewhere in surfing. So I say it was 
not only something I enjoyed, it was my job, it was my dream, it was my passion. It was everything I, I was in and around was, was 100% surfing. I, I didn't care, care about anything else. It's so crazy that with surfing, obviously, if you look at me, I'm not a coast kid. I'm a suburbs <laughs> boy, unfortunately. Um, wasn't as exciting, I'm sure. But uh, it's funny. Every, I've got a lot of friends that, that surf and everyone that, like, if you're a real surfer, it's all people care about. It's all people do. I was uh, getting a haircut a few days ago and, like, I go to this place and they're busy sometimes. I forget different barbers. There's this new guy uh, and he was a surfer and he said, oh, 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 what, am I, what are you doing later? Oh, surfing. Tomorrow I'm surfing. It's just, like, it just captures something. There's something, even to me, who's not, like, a coastal kid, there's something magical about being out in the ocean and like experiencing that. So I can, I can imagine how that took over. But you were into like a lot of sports before you picked up surfing, and then did that all kind of just fade away when you got on the board? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I mean, you could name any sport you want, and I, <laughs> I probably played it. Like I was listing them off the other day, and it was like the the obvious ones, like soccer, rugby, swimming, tennis, and then I'd play obscure ones like. Um, <laughs> I mean, water polo and like I played everything, but the year I picked up surfing, I fell in love with it so much. I gave up everything else and just wanted to, to do surfing. So like the last year I played any other sport, like with any competition or even training or anything like that was the year I picked up surfing. But I, I always love hearing other people describe what the sport looks like from the outside because I think being around it for so long, you almost take it for granted a little bit. It's, it is amazing when you do think about it i i because i've been part of it i see obviously a lot of the positives but there are a lot of things that i would now consider negatives but when you're swept up in it that's all just part of it mm. um but i still love hearing people's account of it and that's obviously something that makes it so amazing is is that draw not only from when you're doing it that keeps coming back but people from the outside that look at it and say that must must be nice to do it yeah, it is. But even like there's a part of me, especially when I watch surfing and, and like obviously big wave surfing is scary for everyone, but there's like an element to the wildness of nature and unpredictability that's almost scary for me. Mm. You know what I mean? Looking at that, it's like so raw. But I imagine you would feel more connected to, to the planet and to earth, to everything going on when you're out there compared to on land. Definitely. And that adds to the challenge and I think why it is so rewarding when when you do improve or when you have a good surf or you do well competitively. My, my dad used to always explain it really well when he'd compare it to other sur other sports and explain why it is so challenging, he always said that it's like you're playing tennis, so you're surfing against someone else, except you have to go and catch the tennis court every time you, you need to play a set. So there's this other completely different element. You don't know what's going to happen. You need to learn a lot more about the ocean and the environment in order to get better waves and improve, and that's only half of it. Then you've got to perform and you know, this is if you're doing it competitively, you're surfing against someone else who can just get better waves than you one day, even though you might be a better surfer and vice versa. You could be surfing against someone that's better than you and you just get the waves and on that day, it's, it's just your lucky day. So I think there's a lot of things about it that make it so different to a lot of other sports, which is why it is so alluring. But I mean, as it, it definitely teaches you a lot over, over the years, not only just about what it is to compete in something like that and I, I talk about it competitively a lot because it was part of my life competitively for so long I, I always love the sport for what it is but competitively you learn a lot about winning and losing um, you learn a lot about you know nature and how to read different things and you know and this ever-changing environment so there's so many ways you can learn and I think that's what what makes it as amazing as, as it is and I imagine one thing that would have made what you went through even that little bit hard to deal with is 
correct me if I'm wrong, but the year leading up to, to that, that was the year that you were gearing up to, to give it a crack to make the world tour, right? Yeah, yeah. So that I had some of my best results competitively in late 2015. So I was looking forward to 2016 and trying to create some goals for myself. And based off the success I'd had in competitions the year before that, I just decided that I wanted to give it my all because I didn't want to look back in however many years, maybe when I was like 40 or 50 and be like, could I have made it or, or, you know, did I give myself an opportunity? And that's where I decided I'm going to work on my surfing, work on my body. So start working out with a personal trainer, going to the gym, getting stronger, getting fitter, working on strategy and just putting everything I had into this one goal of, of trying to make it. And, and at least if it didn't work out, which chances are it probably wasn't, like there's only 34 people in the world that get to surf on the world tour. So it's incredibly difficult to make. But I still didn't want to live life knowing that I hadn't at least tried. Mm. And it's 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 funny that uh, that it all happened around that time. And you said if you didn't make it, you're going to give it a crack. Your your whole life, you're going to set up a job, something to do with surfing. Anyway, yeah. you mentioned that uh, in the doco that the day of and the night before was kind of a really shitty night. Yeah. What was the story behind that? Because didn't you work at a surf shop or something and there was an issue? Yeah, so I was managing a surf shop in Thoreau, which is about 45 minutes from where I live in Kayama. Um, and that morning at 2 a.m. I woke up to a phone call from my boss, Dylan, um, saying that the shop had been broken into. So that's how that day started. It's, it's funny. I always – you talk to people who are trying to like – get you to see if there's any like fate or like any sliding doors moments or any like fork in the road moments of like, was there anything you knew about the day? And I'm like, like you could look at something like that and say maybe you should have just rolled over and gone back to bed. <laughs> but I think there's also, I mean, if you were to react like that, anytime you have something negative happen in life, you probably wouldn't go far. You probably wouldn't leave home very often. So yes, that is something retrospectively you can look at and say might've been a mark of something about to happen that day. But that essentially was the reason I went for, for the surf that afternoon. Um, having a bad day at work is something that we all encounter from time to time. Um, only thing for me is when I have a bad day at work or doing anything is I would go surfing. So as I was driving home that afternoon, I said I'll just go straight to Bombo. I knew there were waves there and um, called my mate Joel and said I was, I was going to go for a wave. And um, what was the weather like that afternoon? Was it everything? I know you've probably been asked this before, but I'm actually really curious because – I like to really put myself in the situation and really understand things. But what, what was the conditions like? What were the waves like? Was there just a normal day? You think I'm going to go there, clear my head like I always do? Pretty much. A normal day. It was a really nice afternoon, sunny, not many clouds about. Um, obviously being sort of the end of March, it's starting to feel a bit more like autumn where you get those cooler late afternoons. So it was a bit like that. The waves were fun. It was only sort of like head high, so nothing enormous, but – still really really fun it's the type that i'd surfed that particular part of the beach for the weeks leading up to that and knew there was a wave there and there was not much thought that went into where to surf or, or anything like that i just knew that that's where i was gonna go out even down to like that part of the beach because i didn't want to surf where everyone else was i knew i just kind of wanted to be by myself and and kind of do what i would usually do after a bad day which is just spend a bit of time catching waves you mentioned that faint thing almost like as the elephant in the room, but you've gone through one of the most unique experiences on the planet. Mm. Do you believe in fate? I, I don't have an answer and that you would think that maybe it'd be a bit clearer to me now, but I think 
whether it's fate and things happening for a reason like this event that occurred at this specific time in my life to give me the perspective that I needed to get to where I am today. Like that that you could look at in and of itself and say that is significant, maybe you should look at it differently. But then I guess you look at, you know, fate and things like that and you're like, why would it have to be something that terrible to go through for you to get that perspective? And then you look at the luck that I had, which we'll talk about in a, in a little bit, I guess, as we, we recount the stuff that made me essentially survive it. Mm. And whether you believe in luck, fate, you know, or, or a higher power, if you're religious, whatever it is, I think we just like to grasp onto something to have some sort of reasoning or a meaning for things happening. Like as human beings, we just kind of like answers. There's nothing that we'd like to have be left out there. And, and that's probably why I struggle to have an answer for it. But if you can go through something like what I've been through or anything in life where, you know, you could point to fate or, or anything like that uh, and it helps you provide reasoning or understanding of that event, then I think grab onto that. Like yeah. if you can come to terms with it and that's your way of coping, then then I think that's fine. Exactly, because that's where my head first went when you, when you when you said the fate thing or was there people like, oh, was there anything like ominous about the day and all that stuff? And obviously you can see – you can see what happened as a, as, a, as a bad thing and obviously in of itself in isolation obviously was but I don't want to reveal too, too much of what we'll speak about but it, it's on, you, you've spoken about this, you say it was one of the best things, maybe the best day of your life ever to happen. So yeah. there is, there's been a lot of beautiful things come off the back of that um, and exactly just what you said, like I do the same thing in my life, like it's just, I feel like it's easier to, to, to deal with, to reason with things, the good and the bad if you feel like that, because well, the way I look at it, when things go wrong or something bad or a, or a challenge I have to deal with, I look at it as a redirection. Mm. So it's not like a necessarily a failure or a bad thing, but it was a redirection pushing me closer to where I'm meant to go. So I know it's kind of a fucked up way to, to reason it, but we're never going to know. I can't say here, sit here and say, because that's what I believe, that's the truth. It's what I believe. But the reason I believe it is because for me and for a lot of people that like kind of listen to this podcast that have to go, deal with the ups and downs of life and the challenges, like – I feel like if you are able to choose your perspective, why not choose the one that has the positive benefits on your life? Because some people like yourself are fine with the ambi ambi big ambiguity. That's the one. Say it again. <laughs> ambiguity. I'm, I'm not even fucking going to try. I, I'm, I, yeah, I, I'm usually good with my – but like you can clearly – you're okay with that and yeah. fine. But not a lot of people, like you said, people want answers. They can't live with that. So I feel like it's it, it, it's been a positive thing in my life. But going through such a, a – crazy situation like you i can't say what i would what i would think coming out of that now let's, let's we'll jump back to where we were you, you were surfing and talk to me what happened I, I i know how at first you got a nudge that quite obviously quite a powerful nudge when it first happened did you have time to think what was that or did you just no it's i i always try and explain to people that experiencing this is nothing like what you would assume it's going to be like I think a lot of people when you you mention shark attack they first thing they think of is jaws yeah <laughs> and then the second thing they think of is probably you see a fin coming through the water towards you and if there's one thing i've learned from this whole experience is that sharks are incredibly good at what they do the sharks that you need to worry about are not the ones that you can see and that means that you can't worry about them because you won't be able to see them they're so good at what they do that if they're in any sort of like feeding or hunting mode that you're not going to know about them until it's too late essentially and a lot of shark attacks are unprovoked and often a mistake anyway but usually the impacts from you know 
whatever that first bite or first hit is are the ones that cause the damage which is essentially why a lot of sharks get get a bad name but the that is all depending on what species it is and the circumstances and that's its own i suppose conversation but by the time i had been knocked off my board and landed in the water i couldn't even take a moment to look around before i looked down it's already biting me on on the left leg it happened that quick and knowing now how quick they are and how swift they are you can see how they've been around for as long as they have like these creatures that they're actually dinosaurs they've been around for thousands of years like they there's a reason for that it's because they're really good at finding things to eat and kill and like this is a really unfortunate way to gain that perspective but respect is something i've always had for sharks and going through it through my experience has only added to that respect because it's been something that i can look at and i mean it it is a lot easier to look at when you've had a positive long-term outcome from it and i know not everyone's the same but the respect that I have for sharks is only strengthened by knowing how magnificent they are as creatures. I was speaking to a guy the other day that said that he went swimming with sharks and there was something about when he looked down and saw it for the first time that even though it was just swimming below him and there was a couple of them that he could see, had no interest in, in him, but he said just seeing them, he felt so small and insignificant in that moment that it was almost like he could just separate himself from that. And this is just someone that's swimming with them let alone someone that's feeling them at their full force. They are incredible creatures and, and that's something that I have definitely learnt through through my experience. You mentioned um, it's not ever how someone would imagine it going down, right? Now, I imagine as someone who surfed as much as you do, there would have been times in your life where you'd have thought, hey, obviously I'm aware that this is a potential outcome or a situation I could find myself in. Did you have a plan like you always thought, okay, if this ever happens, I'm going to do this and then – does it all just go out the window? Well, I, I always say I was kind of weirdly prepared to be attacked by a shark. <laughs> like, and, and this sounds really morbid. I, I think this is how I, I deal with a lot of situations in life is you look at like best and worst case scenario and a lot of things. And I, I think that's not always healthy to do in, in a lot of situations. But for me, I'd always ask myself, like, if you were to be attacked by a shark, what, what's your action? Like, what are you supposed to do? And you have an idea but when it's all happening you just it's instinct you're not making any conscious decisions when you're going through all of that and i think that's what's really interesting about looking back on it and comparing it to like whatever plan i had beforehand the only thing that i did correctly that i would have said beforehand is the right thing to do is to not look down and that is something i can credit bethany hamilton for <laughs> who a lot of people have seen her film um soul surfer or heard her story and one of the things that really stuck with me from that was that she didn't look down at her arm because she didn't want to go into shock and that weirdly in that moment how intense it was and with everything going on and like I said the fact that you're not making any conscious decisions the fact that I didn't look down at my leg is definitely one of the things that saved my life but you know you you get the I wonder how calm I'm going to be in a situation like that I wonder if I'm going to be aware enough to shout for help I wonder if I'm going to be aware enough to do what everyone says that you should do and either try and punch a shark or or poke it in the eye and all of that just goes out the window it, you kind of go through this waterfall of the fight flight or freeze where you freeze straight away and you essentially try and figure out what to do and that's where you take in all this information which for me was the the vivid details that i can recall which is the touch the absence of sound and and the look in the shark's eyes there's those moments there which are like burned into my memory just because when you're frozen and you're 
a lot of people kind of get fight, flight or freeze mixed up with the freeze response. They think it's like last resort, it's giving up. But freeze is actually just fight or flight on hold while you gather information. And this is something I found out later. I wasn't aware of that in the moment, obviously. So that's why I was able to take in all that information, which is really cool. But then you're like, okay, what is the next thing that I have to do? And that was fight, try and punch it, didn't work. And then it's like, okay, what now? You go back to freeze and then you're like, okay, well, what is left? It's only flight. And flight for me was to just pull away from the shark and try and get away from it in any way possible. And you don't know it at the time, but that's a massive mistake. I don't know how people can stay composed enough and to make the choice in that moment to do what you're supposed to do, which is to kind of stay with the shark and do your best to try and disturb it so it'll let go. But pulling away from the shark is a mistake because it's not going to let go when you pull away from it. It is essentially grabbing onto this bit of flesh and when you pull away from it, it holds onto that flesh and just separates it from, from your body. So whilst that is a mistake, it... I think in that moment, based on everything I've tried, was the only logical move that, that I could have done that eventually led to my safety. But it also, there's so many risks associated with that, not knowing how much blood you're going to lose and stuff like that. But again, that's not a conscious decision that, At that you're time, making. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's where I pull away from it, lose that chunk of leg, but have this window of escape where I'm just focused on trying to get to the beach. And I swim as hard as I can, only focused on getting to the sand and probably only get about 20 metres further in and have this thought, which is terrifying of, you know, is this shark going to come back a second time? The only thing more terrifying than that thought is looking over your shoulder and actually seeing it come back and having just enough time. You can see the fin at the top of the water. Not so much the fin, but it was just all of this water coming towards me. And all I could do is just put my hands and stop it and luckily my right hand lands on its nose my left hand doesn't have as good an aim um, it goes into its mouth but I pull it out pretty quick lose some skin on the way past but that's the least of my worries in that moment but then there's this second moment of like having a shark at arm's length as it's pushed me through the water just wondering like what the hell do you do now I've already tried to escape from it once and it's come back what's my next move and that's where you kind of you revert back to fight flight or freeze you, you're frozen that's another moment I can I can take in and I'm like looking around trying to figure out what to do and I see a wave approaching and I say I think the only option I've got here is when the wave hits us to push a shark to one side and hopefully the wave's got enough power that it pushes me in and luckily the wave does have heaps of power and pushes me in so by the time I surface I'm standing up it's like waist deep water and this time when I look up, luckily I don't see the shark coming back a third time. I see my mate Joel that I called to go for a surf that afternoon paddling towards me as fast as, as he could and he puts me on his board and takes me to the beach and, and essentially you know, removes me from that situation. And it's not until you get to the beach that you feel any sort of safety. There's so many questions I want to ask <laughs> about that before we get into what happened on the beach. How long do you think, I'm sure time's warped but how long do you think it was from that first time it, it hit you to you were back on the sand it's probably maybe see this is where I struggled to, to figure it out because I think the initial like between it biting me and me like pulling away from it less than five seconds but that felt like five minutes so this is where I find it hard to gauge time and then you probably add 20 seconds of swimming in another 10 or 15 of like trying to hold it off Joel gets to me maybe 30 seconds later, but then it takes us a while to get in because 
essentially the surfboards that, that Joel had to put me on his board because I'd lost mine when I got hit initially and his board's only made for one person. So it's not easy to paddle. It's not, not easy to get in. We get stuck in a rip. So it might have taken anywhere between three and five minutes, but I have no idea. <laughs> and those moments, like you said, burned into your memory forever. What, what's going through your head when you're literally staring eye to eye to a shark in its environment, like you're so out of your depth, like you said, these apex predators versus other things that live in the ocean. You're a human being in its realm. What's going through your head when you lock eyes with this shark and does it have any emotion? Does it have anything there that you can appeal to? Or No, not at all. It's not something you can talk to and I think that's what makes these attacks so, I guess, so raw for people to comprehend as human beings. Like if we get into an altercation or something like that, apart from like punching, like you, you're probably going to be able to reason your way around an argument in most, in most cases, but you have no opportunity or chance to do that here. So there's something within that that makes you feel so insignificant and small where you're really at the mercy of whatever this, this creature decides to do next and you have no say in what that's going to be. All you can do is just react based on instinct for whatever is going to happen in front of you. And I think that's that's pretty much what, what happened from the moment it attacked me to, you know, the time Joel picked me up is there was no conscious decision to do anything. It was all just survival instincts. And I think that's something that is really impressive about how the human body reacts in something like that, how it can make all these decisions, which for me ended up being, for the most part, the right decisions to essentially keep me alive and, I think that's pretty amazing in itself. Because even if they say the correct thing to do isn't to pull away because you're going to lose a lot of flesh, who knows if you didn't, it might not have worked out the way it did, you know what I mean? Exactly. And not pulling away goes against every survival instinct that you must have in your body. So even if yeah. you you were so educated on this, I feel like doing the right thing in the right situation would be so difficult to do. Now, I want to ask you a question. I've, I've heard you speak before and, and obviously you told your story about – kind of what was happening and the thoughts going through your head and even some of the emotions you were feeling. But I haven't heard you say anything about the pain you experienced. Was the pain incredible or was it such a big thing that your body kind of shuts it off? Again, just another amazing human body response that you have is just a complete wash of adrenaline. So that's where, you know, adrenaline itself is kind of like a natural painkiller. So there's no pain that you feel in a moment like that. There's there's no, well, I'm sure it might be different from, from like case to case, but for me, the, I have no recollection of any sort of pain until I get to the beach, but the pain was never in my leg. The pain I had by the time I got to the beach was in my stomach, which I was unsure if I'd been bitten there or what had happened. And later on I found out it was actually my organs starting to shut down due to blood loss. But that was the only first conscious bit of pain and I guess pain a lot of the times is perception as well um you know and I guess the perfect example of that is if I was to get stabbed in my leg right now where I have no feeling because there's no pain receptors there and I'm not aware of it I don't feel it but looking down at that and seeing that I've been stabbed in the leg that can cause someone to go into shock so, so much of pain is perception, but I think when you do go through this complete 
out-of-body experience and response, you, you just don't comprehend anything like that until after the fact. Yeah, of course, of course. And another moment I really want to ask you about is the moment you look and you, and you see Joel heading towards you. Is it relief? Is it what, what's, what's the emotions you're feeling at that time? Definitely a lot of relief. I, I always have wondered how I would respond in a situation like that and I think every surfer would love to have the response that Joel has had. But again, you don't know how you're going to respond until you're in that situation. The fact, the fact that he was out there is amazing in, in itself, but the fact that he chose to paddle towards me and, and he says himself that was just instinct, it wasn't much of a choice. But the fact that he came towards the danger knowing full well what was happening is something that, you know, the words bravery like, and courage don't even cover, I think, what it takes to be able to do that. I think you can only hope that you respond in a situation like that. But if he turned around and paddled towards the beach because of knowing what was up, I, you can't, you know, you can't blame anyone for that either. Like you're, and that's that's really what makes going through this from my point of view. And and again, all the things that kind of led me to survive is is so amazing because if anything goes the other way, it's not like I I can blame anyone for it or. or feel hard done by for that happening it's just the fact that all these things happened one by one and it kind of led to my survival I think is is incredible and Joel's just one single part of that and what does I can't even begin to imagine what does Joel mean to you after doing something like that and how do you thank someone for risking their life to save yours it's it's hard um I I still probably haven't done a good enough job of (laughs) Like you can't return the favor, obviously, of like, or you hope you don't have to. Um, the it's definitely brought us a lot closer, and like we were good mates before that. Like we we lived together, um, shared a house just in Kaima, and we've we've always been pretty close. But I think going through something like that together, there's just so much respect that I have for someone like Joel. And, and again, I don't even know if respect is the correct word for it. It's, it's admiration. There's there's so many emotions that I have when I speak about Joel that I, I just find it difficult to put into words because I, I owe him everything like not only him everyone else on the beach but I, I wouldn't be here without him full style I wouldn't have made it to the beach so to have someone like that that you know has had such a profound impact on your life like you 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 can you hear of people all the time where they'll say you know meeting this person it saved my life or it made such a profound impact but it's very rare you can point to someone and say, without that person, I would no longer be here. And, and it's pretty incredible to have someone like that in your life. In a complete literal sense as well. Exactly. It's no figuratively, oh, I changed paths after this. Yeah. And you get back to the beach. What, what happens next? I believe that's just the start of a whole new chapter. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> Crazy. Well, by the time we get back to the beach, I'm completely out of energy. Like I can't lift my arms up. I, um, I can't do anything there. And Joel drags me up the beach and he runs off to get some help. And I'm kind of laying there trying to trying to figure out what's happening. Um, still not looking down at my legs, still not knowing how bad the situation is. Like I, I obviously know what's happened. I know I've been attacked by a shark. I know it's not great based on, you know, the look on Joel's face when he got over to me and, and you can see all the blood in the water. Could you see the blood in the water as well? No, or just- I, I was trying my best not to not to look at any of that but there's this moment where he runs off to get some help and I'm like okay well how bad is this and 
you know, you you know you're weak in that moment. You know you're losing a lot of energy, and you have that thought, which is like incredibly profound. I I still am not the best at explaining what this is like because I don't think it's natural for humans to explain it. But that feeling of wondering, you know, is this what it feels like to die? Is such a such a profound thought to have, and something that you don't really you can't prepare for that. And there's no telling what that is actually supposed to feel like and i've had plenty of people ask me like did you have that life flash before your eyes or you see like the white light or anything like that and i didn't and i don't know if that's because i wasn't close to death or if that's even a thing that people experience but there was just something about that moment for me that didn't feel right there was just something within me that said you know this doesn't feel like it's your time and i had no idea why i had the right to think like that um Obviously, I'd lost a lot of blood. Obviously, you know, I'm laying on the, on the beach, not able to move. Like I mentioned before, my organs starting to shut down due to blood loss. I had no idea how close I was to death. But the fact that I had told myself that it didn't feel right, I was like, okay, well, what do I do now? I'm like, All I can really do is just breathe and try and stay present. And I think that was a, the perfect response for that because being able to focus on my breathing – being able to stay present in that moment really helped me slow things down, which obviously slows down your heart rate and your blood and all of these things which play a big role in, you know, being able to make it off the beach that night. But essentially at that point, the everything's in, in everyone else's hands. Then it's all just the emergency and, and rescue effort. And, and this is kind of where the luck really comes into it. Um, and I'll, I'll explain the luck and see if you can sum it up and see if you – See, I don't know if you believe in luck or fate or anything like that, but see, I'd like to hear your response. So I was lucky with where the shark bit me. It missed my femoral artery by two millimetres and femoral artery is major blood supply to the leg. So if that had been severed at all, I wasn't making it to the beach. Incredibly lucky, two millimetres is nothing. nothing. I was lucky that Joel was there. Joel, for all of his amazing life-saving qualities, isn't my most reliable of mates. <laughs> and... Like he, he definitely redeemed himself by, <laughs> by paddling towards me. But Joel is my mate that I'd call to do stuff all the time and he's either going to show up late or not show up at all. I said there was maybe like a 25% chance he was going to be in the water that afternoon because when I call him, half the time he just doesn't show up. He's always late, so that's fine. He was late that day. But half the time when he actually shows up, especially when we're surfing, half the time he'll come for a surf, the other half he'll be on the beach filming. So the fact that he was actually surfing with me that afternoon is, is incredible. And that's something you can probably quantify with numbers, like 25%. Great, 25%, two millimetres, we can quantify this with, with numbers. The person that Joel ran off to get help from was his now wife, Aggie. This is the first afternoon I've ever seen Aggie come down to the beach and watch Joel surf. And obviously first responder, she was the person that called the ambulance and stuff like that, more than qualified to do so because she's an intensive care nurse. She knew that I needed helicopter. She knew exactly what paramedics I needed and was able to relay that information on the phone and do it properly. The other person that was walking along the beach that afternoon who has no explanation for why he was there, his name's John, off-duty nurse. Like all of these things that go in my favour, like I go from being the most unlucky I've been in my life to everything happening after that. Like if I say 99% of the time, that probably doesn't even cover it, but 99% of the time that ends in tragedy and for some reason i'm still here today because of all of those things that went in my favor i just got goosebumps when you said that (laughs) 
Um, and were you, were you conscious the whole time or did you fade in and out? I was conscious right up until the point I got in the helicopter. So being conscious on the beach meant that I was aware of everyone around me and everything that was happening and a big part of that was trying to deal with the reactions of others when they saw how bad things were and some people you know react a lot differently to others but I was just trying to stay calm there were people like a lot of people that I knew who were surfing further to the north that had seen what was happening and came in and there were a couple of people that I'd been friends with and surf with from when I was younger and like one of my mates Geordie he walks over and I can see the shock in his face and I'm like well what do I do I'm like hey Geordie how are you <laughs> and I think being ca- as calm as I was trying to be in that situation helps the whole the whole rescue effort because when one person panics it passes on to the next it was I felt from my position that things were really calm on the beach for how frantic I think those situations can be so being conscious on the beach and being able to take in all of those interactions like even remembering my mum's phone number off by heart so Aggie could call her and, and and tell her the news was something that I don't think there's many situations where someone can stay that aware and and can be that conscious on the beach. But I guess being conscious through the whole situation is something that helps me have a clear memory of it but a positive memory of it as well. And it is easy to have a positive memory when the outcome is survival and that's obviously very good. But I think that's something that has helped me be able to talk about it later and obviously deal with whatever the long-term effects of this trauma have been in being able to have a clear and conscious memory of it because your parents made it down to the beach before you were like loaded onto the helicopter right yeah so they they live about five minutes away and that i i didn't expect them to get down to the beach in time i didn't expect them to be to get called until aggie came over and was like i need to call your mom um where are your keys so i can get into your car and i was like it's all right i've got a number (laughs) i remembered it from when i was a kid so to see my parents in a situation like that, I think that was the first time it was really emotional for not just not just my mum who obviously, you know, the, the mother's instinct is something that is going to have some sort of emotional reaction, but my dad's experience was really unique on the beach that afternoon. This isn't something I found out until later, but I, I didn't have many recollections of, of him from the beach it was more just about mum because she was there she was hugging me and she was right there but that experience for my parents is is incredibly difficult like my my mum obviously she was the one that got the call and just utter confusion when she's being told that her son's been attacked by a shark and she needs to get to the beach now and not knowing how bad things are going to be and just trying all you can do to get down there just to you don't know if you're going to have to say goodbye. You don't know what this is going to be like. So there's a lot of emotions that are going through that for mum, but I think it was even more of a unique experience for my dad because he he had an idea of how things were supposed to go that afternoon. Like he's he's worked in emergency services his whole life with fire and rescue. So situations like this are not out of the ordinary for him. And the reason why they got to the beach so quickly is because he had – lights and sirens on his car so they were right there and he was telling me about how on the way there he's working out this this process and this plan which he would usually do through work of what he's going to do action by action when he gets there because that's how you're supposed to approach these situations how he's going to jump in he's going to be able to help out he's going to be able to like coordinate things and he 
comes to the beach, mum runs straight to me and he's trying to organise stuff and he's being like physically held back and not being able to go into what he's planned to do. And just knowing that his response and, and what he was going through, rather than being able to help out, he's actually standing there as a bystander watching his son go the colour that people go right before they die. Like that is significant for anyone, let alone like his expectation of the situation, how it played out for him. So I, I've always said as terrible as the situation is to go through in my perspective, like being the one that's been attacked by a shark, I would rather go through it myself than, than be my parents. And a, a big reason for that I think is because my one of my greatest fears in life is receiving a phone call saying that something bad has happened to someone that you love. And I think just knowing that my parents have experienced that not only my parents as well anyone like the most emotional that i get is when i talk to people that will tell me they remember where they were or they can recall the emotions that they felt when they heard the news and i think just knowing that i have been that moment for someone else where they've got the news and like your heart drops is like that that way is heavy because of the fear that that holds for me and i think whether it's my parents or whether it's my friends or, or anyone who's been a part of that story, it is that's a moment I think that that'll last in in everyone's memory for a long time. It, it is for sure, but that moment that they had to experience that negative moment. On the flip side, the amount of positivity they would have felt knowing that you did make it, mm. I'm sure would have you know, made up for all of that. Obviously, yeah. someone like your dad, the, the scars would still be there to be confronted with that situation, so experienced in these scenarios but can't do anything to help. Was that – were the paramedics already there on scene before your parents got there? They were at that so time. They got them quick. Yeah. Yeah, so they – the paramedics didn't have to come from far. Um, they were – I mean, they still probably took about 15 minutes to get there, um, but it wasn't until they were kind of arriving that – Aggie was like, we need to call your parents because she just had that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it wasn't like everyone got the phone call at the same time. It was kind of like paramedics, um, helicopter, and then it was who, who else needs to know about it. It's one crazy thing that, that I always think about is how fast news spreads. One of my friends who was actually on exchange in England, he was in a museum in Germany at the time, and he got a call from someone on the beach that afternoon and actually found out before my parents did, which is is crazy. Like he, his friend that called him just didn't know who to call. He was like, I just need to need to talk to someone right now. I'm just call my mate James. So the fact that he found out before my parents is is crazy. So crazy, man. And that 15 minutes lying on the beach, is it the longest wait of your life? Does it feel like hours? Yeah, I think so. But it, at the same time, there was that calmness about it there, there was definitely a point i think more so in between when the paramedics got there and then when the helicopter got there because there was a bit of a delay in between those that you you kind of feel safe when the paramedics get there because you're like okay i have medical attention but you're not out of the woods yet like you still need to go and get proper hospital treatment when you have these sorts of injuries so I think just waiting for the helicopter to get there and then there was obviously some logistics on getting me from the beach to where the helicopter could land because they couldn't land like right next to me. They had to land up on the headland. So they had to get me off the beach into the ambulance and then take the ambulance up to the helicopter. So that whole process there is 
that was the one that took the longest and that was the one where when things start moving, you, I think, and you're not laying there on the beach in this comfortable environment, that's when I started to feel a little bit less comfortable and, and you're, you know, you're being taken away from the familiar faces that have kind of got you to this point and everything's foreign from there. So you're looking up at people you don't know and all your trust is in them. And for some reason you should have more trust in them because they're professionals, but the familiar face and just knowing that the people who'd helped me on the beach were people I knew for some reason for me was, was comforting in a way. And what was it like for the moment that you finally get loaded into the, to the helicopter uh, and then you find out there's no room for your mum? So that, that was, I, I wasn't thinking about it too much until like my mum my started reacting to it. So the helicopter that they brought down was this tiny little red helicopter and it was the, uh, the only one that they could have that was nearby that had blood on board. So they brought this helicopter down and at that point they had given me all the painkillers and things like that and I was starting days out a little bit more, but there was, I, I wasn't told directly that mum couldn't come with me, but I knew just based on this bit of commotion that, you know, mum wasn't going to be able to make it on the helicopter with me. And to think about it, the, there was no, there shouldn't have been any expectation that she should have been able to come on the helicopter. Like it's a medical emergency and it's not like someone should be able to, but when you look at it from mum's perspective and she doesn't know if I'm going to make it to hospital, let alone, this point of survival or whatever comes after that I think she was just afraid to not be with me if the worst case scenario happens and I just remember when she came over and she was almost like she was saying goodbye that's when it got really emotional and really hard for me where I did feel like I was finally alone like all again all these faces the familiar people had left and then mum was kind of the last one of those so that that was a a difficult moment to kind of get through even though it was obviously a positive of leaving the beach and going towards professional help. Uh, at that point I was really dazing out of consciousness because of the painkillers and stuff and that was like my last memory of, of being on the beach. Do you remember much about the flight there? There was, yeah, a lot actually. Um, when I was on the helicopter I had this this weird, weird dream which is a byproduct of the painkillers that I've, I'd been given and in this dream it was it was this strange experience because i was on the helicopter and i was conscious in the helicopter and i can see like all the lights and all the machines and can hear all the noise and there's the paramedics who are saying like you know focus on your breathing stay calm and all of this and i that's when i can start to feel this pain but then i would daze into this dream about this recovery and the recovery was this strange experience of essentially going through like waking up in hospital realizing what had happened coming to terms with that starting with a physio starting in like a gym setting and kind of working on it and then I'd like flash back to the helicopter and I'd be in immense pain again and then I kind of daze back into the dream and I'd be like walking again and I, I just went through this whole like flash between the present in the helicopter and being in immense pain but then this surreal experience of being in this dream of making progress in this recovery and then by the time I finally wake up, I'm in hospital and had to kind of come to terms with the fact that it, that recovery wasn't real. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later where, well, actually it was probably about a month later where I even thought back to the significance of that dream and, and kind of thought like, 
have I just visualised what this is supposed to look like moving forwards? Because early days of hospital, it's really just about the injury and, and everything in front of you and you're not really thinking about recovery yet or what you're supposed to do to get through it. But looking back on it, that was significant because in a weird way, kind of knowing that you've done it once, even though it is just a dream, gives you this strange feeling of hope. Yeah, did it, it almost feel like you'd started your mental preparation for the road to come? And like you mentioned earlier that you felt like it felt wrong, it wasn't your time. Do you, do you, do you take some meaning from that? I know you, you don't like to necessarily put too much meaning on, on these events, but it, it seems like quite a profound moment. Yeah, and that, that's, again, probably another one of those moments that you can take with as much or as little meaning as, as you like. And obviously I took a lot of meaning out of the dream and, and kind of crafting this recovery or at least taking some sort of hope out of it. But, you know, reflecting that with do I take any meaning out of the fact that, you know, I didn't feel like I was supposed to die and, and if that means anything for you know, why I'm supposed to be here today and share that story. I, I think if anything, I try now to look at the whole situation as as a whole. And, and this is was a lot easier to do further down the track when I could look back on everything with a, a clearer view and, and kind of look at it and, and say, well, again, that 99% of times of thing, like if I am that 1% or that you know, 0.1% or whatever it is, what am I going to do with the luck that I have just to be able to have a life to live. Mm. And that's something that I think when you start to look at things a bit more positively like that and at least take it for what it is and be like, okay, well, I am here today. I do have all of this stuff in front of me now. What am I going to do with this? I think it's more you look at the opportunity in front of you rather than whatever it is in the past that's that's made you kind of get to that point. Yeah, something I, I really took away from my research and something about about you and your journey something you've been quite adamant and strong about is that once obviously you'd got through this like you would survived and, and now it was about okay the next what happens next you were really adamant that you didn't want to just go back to who you were before you wanted to redefine and create what do you who do you want to be now who, what's my new per, uh, path what's my new purpose what am i going to become after all of that not just diving straight back into that how was that was that something that you, you, you consciously made the decision or what, did it feel like the only option after going through that? Well, it's, it, there were probably different stages of that. Um, at the start, the, the conscious decision was to essentially make the most of the recovery. Like I, especially after I'd been delivered all the bad news about not walking and not surfing and stuff like that, there's, that is really difficult to deal with just because of the, you know, what that meant to the person I was before as a surfer, as, as this person who had surfing as such a large part of their life. And rather than, <clears throat> rather than try and dwell on what was lost, I wanted to focus more on the opportunity that was ahead. And, and that was something that was done with the help and advice of other people like my physio. They helped me with the goal setting and stuff moving forwards. But the other stages of, you know, crafting the person that I am kind of came when I got to a point later down the track where I'd achieved so much and had to be like, okay, well, where am I now and how different is that to not only the person I was before but the person I was laying in the hospital bed with all these expectations and what have I learned along the way that I can apply to life moving forwards and is it going to be because of the same things I was aiming for before the attack or is it for something different and something greater and the process of arriving at where I am today is something that I 
yeah, I think when you explain that to the person that was laying in a hospital bed or even the person before the attack, it would be mind-blowing to get to this stage. But that's the beauty of redefining these purposes and the reason that we are doing things is because our environment around us changes so much. And going through an adversity like this is the perfect example of how your environment can change and the way in which you react to that has to has to change to mirror it, basically. Yeah, 100%. But I imagine, like, they're, yeah, they're telling you all these negative things. And, again, talk about the 99%, the 0.1%. They said, look, you might not walk again. Probably never going to surf again. That's, like, out of the picture. What's, like, those moments, did you ever believe what they told you or did you have this this thing in the back of your head that you felt that I'm going to again defy the odds at the start you you believe it because you put so much trust in medical professionals especially ones who have at that stage they'd given me a lot so I had I had like a lot of gratitude for what they were able to do just to save my leg because I'd lost three quarters of my quad there was 15 centimeters of exposed bone the operation that they had to do was incredible and and I kept saying like how amazing is it that they've been able to save this leg because there was serious talk of amputation before that so even when being told the negative news from doctors I think I was still stuck in this kind of place in between being like well at least I've been able to keep my leg and it wasn't until I got a message from my physiotherapist that helped me kind of define what it was to to look at those limits that the doctors had set that you mentioned just before about not walking and never surfing and and trying to to go past those because the, the message that Scott sent me who's my physiotherapist, was, and this is a big part of the film, that people don't fail by aiming too high and missing, they fail by aiming too low and hitting. And by hearing that message and by talking to Scott about that and by setting some goals with him, I realised that I did have a choice to make and we have these choices all the time. It's to either be defined by what has happened to us and to to look at it and say, you know, poor me, like this sucks and you know, it's, it's part of life now or to look at what is a negative situation almost as an opportunity and say, it might suck now, but what can I do to try my best to overcome that or to, to get through it having learned something or having grown from it? And that can be really difficult to do for a lot of situations. It is really hard to see the light at the end of that tunnel, especially for, for some struggles. Like not everyone is going to experience what I've been through with a shark attack. Some people are going to be better, some people are going to be worse, but a struggle is a struggle no matter what. And we're all faced with struggles at some point, but we all have that choice to make of if we're going to be defined by it or if we're going to do everything that we can to bounce back from it. And I think it's not so much about bouncing back from it and you know proving everyone wrong and you know, setting these enormous goals and, and things. I always say the pride is in what you do to try to achieve whatever that goal is. The pride is in each step that you take every single day to try to improve or to be a better and it doesn't have to be these enormous leaps where people look at you and go that's so inspiring that's amazing you can be proud just you know for some people getting out of bed in the morning like for someone who's dealing with depression or anxiety getting out of bed in the morning is an amazing step whereas you know for some people they might look at a struggle like that and it's a completely different struggle so they struggle to see eye to eye with it no matter what the struggle is it's not about what happens to you but it is about how you respond and I think there is true pride that can be taken in you know, the different responses that we can have depending on what our circumstances are and, and what we can do. But it really comes down to your willingness to make a choice to say, I want to do this. And that choice, that, that, that message that you, just, that you just spoke about is one of, the re- one of the many, but one of the reasons your story is so powerful and, and it's so right and it, it can't be stressed enough. And I know 
like everyone goes through their own struggles in life, right? It's one thing for me to say, don't let it define you because I've gone, but when, when someone's gone through, and, and I know we don't like to compare these things, but someone's have gone through something as traumatic and potentially life ending as you and potentially have everything you've ever loved and lived for ripped away, to be, still be able to realize that, no, I have a choice. I can accept what happened to me and then choose what I do from here or let it continue to define me and ruin the rest of my life. It's so important. But like you said, it, it can be difficult to, for some people to get that perspective shift. Yeah. Now, is, is, there any, is there anything that helped you get that perspective shift? It was, it was the people around me. I, I always thought it was funny when I was laying in a hospital bed being like, what am I going to do to get out of this? Like I always thought it was, it was me. And a part of that is just like young male, how are you conditioned? You fall over, you get up. And that is something that's so funny because of how wrong it is. Like it, it can be good to do stuff yourself and to show resilience within yourself, but so many times we do need the help of other people. I was lucky to have someone like Scott who gave me that perspective on, on goal setting. I was lucky to have my dad who shared that story of his struggle on the beach to get me to realise that I could talk about it and that it wasn't just me going through that struggle. I was lucky to have people throughout my recovery um, who had been through their own challenges that gave me perspective on, you know, just taking that extra step every single day and just trying to better the person you were yesterday. So when it comes to going through those struggles, it is really easy to feel alone. Like I, I had plenty of reasons to feel alone. Like I was the only person who had been attacked by a shark. I was the only person in 70 years in the Illawarra region who'd been attacked by a shark. So that can feel very isolating. I've statistically isolated. The odds of being attacked by a shark are anywhere between 1 in 3.6 and 1 in 11.5 million, depending on severity. So feeling statistically isolated, but feeling isolated like physically in hospital. And I always say hospital is a terrible place to spend time. And the reason it's so bad beyond, you know, the food and the temperature in there because the food's terrible and it gets cold but at night time when all of your support goes home, it's really just you laying in a hospital bed with your thoughts. And that's where the battles really begin. And for me, I felt so alone in those moments and I didn't know how to take that first step forwards because I was relying on myself to do it. But when I started to get the perspective, there were people beside me and I was lucky that a lot of those people were willing to help me. Sometimes it does take the individual to take that first step to try to get that support, but that kind of applies to any parts of life. Like you look at running, running a successful business, right? If you're struggling with something, you're probably going to go and turn to someone who's tangibly going to be able to help you with it. Like if but your first instinct is, I'll, I'll figure it I'll out I'll figure myself. it out myself, exactly. But we only know this through trial and error and trying it yourself and it either doesn't work or it leads to more issues and then you have to address it again. And there's so much value that can be found in support that can be around us, whether it be in like a close friend or a family professional support whatever that is that would be the biggest thing that has helped me through the different mindsets I suppose that have helped me be able to overcome what is the most difficult thing that I've been through did you feel speaking of the support and the different types of places that you got support did you feel that and you can explain what it is to people that, that don't know but did you feel that the bike club actually did really help you and, and it did give you something or was it just like what was that like? It was overwhelming at the start. Um, the, first, <laughs> the bike club, for, for people that don't know, it's a support group for people who have been bitten by sharks. 
So essentially what it is is they'll pair you with someone else who's been attacked by a shark and you, it starts a dialogue between you two. But before I even got to that stage, I was laying in a hospital bed and this guy called Dave came and visited me. And I was sitting there and he starts – he's like, hey, my name's Dave. I'm from the Black Club. And then he goes into this story about a shark attack. And I'm sitting there like terrified. being like, does this, yeah, yeah. does this guy know what I've been through? Like this is, <laughs> this is probably not what you tell someone who's just been attacked by a shark. And – it was obviously told from his perspective as he's someone that has been through it. And it gets to the end and he's like, do you know why I've told you that? And I was like, no. <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm terrified right now. And he's like, people are always going to be interested and intrigued by a shark attack. People are always going to ask questions. So you're going to have to get comfortable talking about it, whether you like it or not. He said the idea of the bike club is to get people talking. And not everyone takes to talking He's like, but this at least gives you a chance to start. And that I think is one of the, the first things that did get me comfortable speaking about the attack uh, because, you know, I, I didn't have much dialogue with the person that I was paired with because he wasn't ready to talk about it yet. But it at least gave me the perspective that, yeah, people are going to be interested. You know, it's how I end up on a podcast like this. It's how I end up doing a film and how I speak. But there's something about needing to be okay with that because I up until that point in life was very quiet shy and reserved and I still am by nature very quiet shy and reserved but knowing that there's a reason to talk about it because people are interested and I found there's usually two types of people there's people who either really want to ask questions about it but are worried about if it's going to be intrusive or there's people that are just ask regardless. <laughs> but people always have questions and I'm always more than happy to answer it because it's not every day you get to ask these questions and get a perspective on something that we don't often get to get in life. And the perspective is a really raw one. The reason I have found people are so interested in, and intrigued by shark attacks is because it's a situation that we as humans are not used to being in. The situation is being part of the food chain. Like as human beings, when we developed the tools and the knowledge, we didn't become apex predators. We completely escaped the food chain. So it's so foreign to us to re-enter this thing that we, for you know, many parts of our evolution, it was natural for us to look over our shoulder and look out for tigers and lions and things like that. So where it's in our nature, but we just don't experience that anymore. So that's why people do find it so fascinating. And I think knowing that means that the questions are always going to be there and I think when you get comfortable with it and, I mean, like I said to you before, I think I've probably been asked most questions up until this stage. It's, it's exciting when people ask me a question I haven't heard. And I, th I think there's always – people have different takes on, on the attack and, you know, their view towards it that there are always going to be new and different questions, which kind of makes it exciting as well. But it's also like, like you said, it's, it's one of the biggest fears for everyone mm. and, and you experience that. So it's just like there's so much – like I want to obviously being a podcast, I want to ask the deeper questions and how, and how you responded because obviously that's where a lot of the value is. But also I kind of myself just want to know what actually fucking happened. Like yeah. it's like – do you know what I mean? There's so much to that. And, and, and jumping back a bit, you, you, you said when you were lying on the beach that you felt like it wasn't your time. Like, but then you said but I had no right to, 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 to believe that. Speaking of Scott, from, from watching – the, the doco, like he almost had no right to, to believe what he believed, but thank mm. God or thank whatever. I'm not, not religious, but thank God he did because look what, look what happened, you yeah. know, against all the odds. Talk to me about, we, we already did, but like 
those first, the first time that Scott said no, obviously we're going to get you back walking, we're going to get you back driving, and and you know we're going to. Well, the first goal he actually put on the board for you was, I believe, surfing. Mm. What's going through your head when everyone's been telling you worst case scenario, and now you got someone who's backing you to you know get get all these things back in your life that you thought maybe would never happen again? I think it goes to show the power of hope. I I think as humans we love to grasp onto some sort of hope, especially when we need something to look forward to. When we've experienced so much negative, we need some sort of hope to grab onto. And I guess everyone has experienced this in different ways, but a good example of it would be like I guess going back to like mid-COVID when you know there's lockdowns and people can't see people. Everyone was grabbing onto some sort of hope, whether it be like Zoom meetings or Zoom chats that you have with your friends or whether it be like a vaccine or just some sort of return to normality. It's that hope that really held people together through that. But the opposite of hope is fear. So when it comes to grappling with these, you know, these challenges that we have, it's kind of that pull of, of hope and then also on the other end fear. And actually speaking of Scott and physiotherapy in particular and kind of linking this back to why I brought up COVID is he said he's never been busier than in the middle over because there was so much fear and fear is something that stands hand, side by side with pain so if you want to try to negate that you need to give as much hope as possible and I think Scott knowing the the psychology in a way of recovery and rehab he knew the importance of providing hope in something like that so whether he believed it or not whether I was going to surf or anything like that he knew that that hope was so pivotal in helping me take those steps and the way that he approached it was, yeah, we're going to set surfing as a goal. I am going to put everything in place to help you achieve that. Everything's set up. It's really going to come down to your willpower and your willingness to show up every single day and, and do the work to try to get there. Um, it's all in your control and I'm going to be here to support you, but it, the pathway is there. It's set. And knowing that from, from my point of view, then really it's just waking up every single day and being like, do I want to do that? Yes, of course I want to do that. And it's kind of about, you know, the <laughs> having that purpose of wanting to achieve that goal and knowing that you have someone that's as supportive as, as Scott is behind you. But not only that, when you start to, to tick off some of these goals, like the earlier ones around independence and getting back to work, other people begin to believe and then you have hope from them and you have all this, it's all momentum at that stage. But when it comes to the purpose of Scott's message and what he meant by aiming high and the reason why he went with surfing is it didn't matter if I achieved that or not. If I, again, he was going to put everything in place. If I achieved it, that's great. But even, even if I only got halfway there, I was probably going to exceed a lot of the expectations that I and a lot of other people had for myself. I was probably going to be walking, which was beyond some of the doctor's expectations. So that is the beauty in that message that Scott said and why it works so well and, you know, why we look at, you know, success and failure when it comes to setting goals is because the way in which we frame something can so often determine our reality in the end. And the thing is, if, if you, you had that plan, and again, it just goes to show how, uh, how powerful a plan could be, when you can see the way out of whatever situation or the, or the path to whatever goal it may be and, you know, okay, there's a clear plan, I have people supporting me, all, on it, all that matters now is how much I want it and, and am I willing to show up every day and do the work, yeah. how powerful that is. But also to that point, if you had only made it halfway, giving it your all and with the support and hope um, that, that Scott gave you and that was just 
the physical capabilities of your body with the injuries that you were left, without that hope, maybe only make it a quarter of the way. Yeah. So what's I find really interesting, and you might know more about, is there legal reasons why that they have to, that the doctors have to go to the negative? I know they have to prepare you for the worst case scenario, but is there like, why is the default to, to go straight to the negative? Is it because, okay, then if you don't get the best case scenario, then they can't seem like they told you that was possible. I just, the power of hope is so, even in the early stages could have been a really, really powerful tool, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, I don't know. I guess it would be to cover themselves as far as why they give the worst case scenario and why that always comes with it. But after that, there's always other people within the hospital system that will give you slightly different messages as well, um, depending on what their role is or what sort of input they have. But I noticed there was a, a distinct difference between how people are, were being talked to in hospital when I was going through the last week I was there, which I was in like the rehab ward. And I did my rehab with a lot of people who'd been through strokes. So they were learning a lot of the same things I was, like starting to walk again, just basic sort of skills. And I noticed there was a big difference between how they would talk to the older people and maybe the younger people that had had strokes. And it was all – they'd all been delivered the same prognosis as far as, you know, as pretty similar to mine. Like you'll never do this, you'll never do that, you'll never do that. But the older people, they would say, you know, you're lucky to be alive. Whereas the younger people and some of the messaging that was coming through to me was you're, you're at least young, you're pretty fit. If you are going to make a, a go at this you know, rehab, you're in a pretty good position. And that's just something that they gave more hope automatically to the younger people. And there was one older guy that I, I talked to quite a bit when I was in hospital who was an amazing, amazing guy to chat to but gave me a lot of perspective on it. It was the third time that he'd had a stroke and he was now one of those older people that they were saying – you're lucky to be alive especially third time around and the the way they were talking to him was quite negative but he was saying to me he's like I've been through it two times already I know what it takes to overcome it I, I know it's going to be a long road I know it's going to be difficult but I'll get there eventually he's like I'm not going to do it as quick as what I would have when I was you know in my 30s or 40s but you know here I am at you know an older age now I know what it takes and I think just that way that he'd spoken to himself and knowing the difference between that messaging between an old person and a young person, that changes the outcomes massively. So that, that was a great perspective to gain early on in hospital that you start to see, you know, obviously the doctors are going to give you the worst case scenario, but then it's really up to, to you and the story you're telling yourself and the support that you have around you and that, that hope that we spoke of around you that will help get you through the recovery, especially once you leave hospital because that – that there, when, when you leave hospital, that's such a massive step because you're out of this negative environment. You're suddenly home in some familiar environment where the food's a lot better. I, I've always – it's made no sense to me why hospital food's so terrible because to make a good go at recovery, you have to be fit. You have to be healthy. And in order to be healthy, you need to eat. I did not like to eat the meals in hospital, so I was lucky that I would have people delivering me food all the time. But there's a lot of other people that – because the food sucks, they just won't eat. Because they're not healthy, then they're not going to have a good chance at recovery. So leaving hospital and making it home is such a big step and not only you know physically for all those reasons but mentally as well as progress. How long were you in hospital for before you could go home? Five weeks. Five. So I had a week in intensive care, three weeks on a general ward and then one week in rehab. And that moment when you – it's obviously a significant moment 
that moment you, you get back to the surf. What was that day like? Was it planned? Did, did he drop it on you? How did that go down? And what's going through your head when you have that board under your arm for the first time and you walk in, you feel the water hit your feet? Uh, that day came very much by surprise. Uh, it was at a point in my recovery where early days you make heaps of progress and things are great and you, you're really confident. But as you go through and you get closer to, you know, whatever the limit is for how far you can push your body, those gains get smaller and smaller. And we were at that stage. So Scott, I think, knew that he needed to get me in the water to get me to, to realise that there was more potential and that things weren't coming to a halt. So I went into physio one day and he was like I was doing my warm-ups because I would just go in there. He'd be treating people and he'd chat to me on the side and I was doing my warm-ups and he was like, jump on the ground and see if you can get to your feet. And I was kind of like, okay, interesting. Tried it and did such a terrible job. Like barely got to my feet. And he was like, oh, maybe try again. And I did a bit better the second time. And he just like out of nowhere just said, I think it's time you go for a surf. And there was this crazy feeling of like relief but then also this kind of wash of fear as well at the same time. Like I'd been working towards this moment the whole time but I didn't know how I was going to react and because it took me by surprise, I didn't know what to do. So I called one of my mates, Nick, um, who I'd surfed with every single day pretty much before the attack. It was like Scott said I can go surfing and rather than him be like, oh, are you ready to go? Like how are you feeling? He was just like – he was pumped. So he was like, I'll come pick you up. I'll grab a longboard. I'll be there in 15 minutes and just hung up. So I, did, I had no time to actually think about mm-hmm. the fears and having – a good friend there with me who I knew was just excited, who kind of took my mind off a lot of the, the fears. Because the fears going back in the water for me at that point wasn't so much around sharks, which I think is what a lot of people would expect. At that point, I'd kind of come to terms with with sharks and educated myself a lot more on it and was in a much better place. But the fear was, what if I go in there and I can't stand up? What if I, what if I can't do it? especially knowing how much surfing meant to me. So that was the real fear. But having Nick out there where he was like, first wave, we'll catch it together and, and we'll see how we go. And just knowing that it didn't matter if I actually got to my feet or not, just at, by the time we paddled out and I was just sitting out the back, I was like, this is the best day of my life. So it's, yeah, wow. it's, it's I, I always look back on that day and that moment as so significant because it's, it's the end of one journey, but then the start of another one in a way. Like it's the end of this incredibly difficult rehab, which has taken a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of hard work to get to. But that really was the start of, you know, what life was like after, after the attack. Because at that point I could focus on, you know, it was, I could wipe the whiteboard clean and it's like, well, what do I want to do from, from here knowing how much is possible? How long did it take to get to that point? Five months. Uh, only five months? Yeah you're back in the water yeah and i always say getting back in the water is different to surfing again because surfing again in my mind is surfing the way i did before getting back in the water is riding a longboard in small waves very simple basic stuff still a massive step for me but five months again it it is a very quick amount of time like that that makes it seem very very short but it probably felt like the longest five months of my life. But the way it happened, the way it wasn't planned, the way um, that Nick was just so, yep, keen eyes straight away, he reacted in the perfect way. It didn't really give you time to ruminate. You might have had the thoughts 
along your journey, but it didn't really have give you time to ruminate about the fear of failure so much about that moment. Mm. It was just dropped on you. Nick was excited, so then you could do it. And then obviously it's an extremely significant moment. You've ticked that box now and then it's the next chapter of life. question I want to know is at what point do you realise, hey, I, I, I want to do something big next? And at what point, um, how do you say it, the Malakai to Oahu paddle? That's an extremely challenging <laughs> experience and I'll get you to explain what it is and why it's so difficult. But at what point do you latch on to I need to challenge myself and push myself even further? So that wasn't the, – the physical challenges didn't come until probably a couple of years after. Like I, I essentially got back to a point where after I'd got back in the water and surfed again, I was like, okay, reevaluate the goals, what I wanted to do. And they're all surfing based. I was like, I want to – you know, improve my surfing, get back into the boards I was riding before I want to compete again. They, they were all significant things. But when I got past those goals, I was probably as strong as I could be and I was as fit as I could be. And I needed to find a reason to keep myself fit and healthy because just showing up to the gym every day for maintenance was something that I I struggled with the idea of. And I was like, having that goal to work towards was so, so big for me. So having talked to Nick about, you know, what we could do to set some some more sort of physical challenges or things to work towards, we started off with this Oxfam 100K walk, which is a walk from um, Brooklyn, like northern Sydney into Manly. And that was great because it allowed me to go through that whole process of, okay, I've got this goal in mind. Here's what I have to do to try to achieve it. It's going to have its ups and downs. It kind of mirrors what the recovery was like but in more of a controlled sense and I, when it comes to resilience resilience is it's like a muscle we can we can work it we can make it stronger we can make it bigger but you can't really go out and seek something that's going to make you like you're not going to go out and seek another shark attack right but we can put these things like a physical challenge in place which is like a controlled version of that and doing the walk made me realize that i was probably going to need to have one of these physical challenges in place at at any time just so I have something to work towards and something to aim towards. So I started off with the 100K walk and then I did a marathon after that. And then after that, Nick came to me and he was like, do you want to do the Molokai to Oahu? And I was like, I have no idea what that is, but I've enjoyed the last two. Let's try something else. And what it is, it's a 54-kilometer open ocean paddle between two islands in Hawaii, so between Molokai Island and Oahu. Um you paddle a 12-foot prone paddleboard, which is if you've gone down to any of the beaches, you can see the boards that the lifeguards have on the beach. It's like a 12-foot long version of that and it's got more of like a hull boat bottom. So they're really fast through the water but they're really unstable. Jumping on one of those boards for the first time after I agreed to do it with Nick was one of the most humbling experiences of my life. Like I thought because I'd surfed and I'd paddled my whole life it would be easy. And the first time I jumped on it was like I fell straight off and I was like, this is not what I expected <laughs> at all. And I knew it was going to be a massive learning curve. But heading towards something like the Molokai timed in really well with this idea for putting this film together, um, which you know started off as a five-minute video to add a bit of context to the talks I was doing, expanded to 20 minutes and, and eventually a feature-length film. And Myself and Sam, who I was working on the film with, were like, oh, this will work perfect alongside the attack and the recovery because you already know what it's like to go through these challenges and the things that you learned through the attack and the recovery, how that applies to this. 
and then COVID kept hitting <laughs> and we kept having these setbacks with COVID where I wanted to go over and do the paddle, but it kept getting canceled. And that was really, really hard to deal with just because I'd go through these full training cycles and then it'd get canceled again. And although I had, you know, this thing that I was aiming for where I was like, okay, it's keeping me fit and it's keeping me healthy. It's doing the right thing. But there was no challenge at the end. It was, it was this really bizarre thing and it got to 2022 and we got the news that it had been cancelled again, which might sound a bit strange because by 2022 international travel's open, everything's fine, but the locals on Molokai love their island and don't necessarily enjoy sharing it with, with people. They do have tourism there, but they, they're like a very locked down local community. So the fact that they had kept their island so quiet quiet for a number of years is something they wanted to keep doing so the event got cancelled again and I talked to Sam and I was like are we ever going to get this film done (laughs) if we can't do this I was like I think we just need to go over and do it and it made a ton of sense to do that because at the end of the day I'd never go in these events or go in these things to try and win or to place well it's really to challenge myself against what I'm doing and also to focus on staying fit and is a big part of you know the reason why i do them in the first place so i didn't need the event to run to to be able to paddle against myself so we got the people in place we had a plan and we went over there in july 2022 and did it was it scarier knowing that you weren't part of this big event doing it that you were going to be or was it more like almost symbolic of this whole thing you've gone through that it was just you in the ocean and Obviously, your mates in a boat, but apart from just you and 54 kilometres of paddling. There's, there is a lot of symbolism there just in, in doing it by yourself and not having all of these things happening around it because you can see how many people are like – I was talking to Brad who was the, the guy that was helping me over there and he was paddling parts with me and he was like, it's good that you're not doing it in the event because it's kind of overwhelming having so many people. And you all start at the same time. There's boats, there's there's people, like you're getting pushed all over the place. It's like, it's crazy. He's like, if you're to do it, this is probably the best way to do it. Because then you're not looking at what other people are doing, comparing yourself. He's like, it's really just you versus the channel then, which was the purpose for the, the paddle in the first place. So there was a, a, you know, I think it probably made it more difficult not knowing, you know, how fast you should be going, how you should be pacing yourself, where your competitors are, because I think you use that as a bit of drive when you are competing like that. But in that way, it really was just me versus myself. And at the times when it got challenging, it got really challenging because I couldn't use, you know, the, the people around me to fuel me. Like one of the things that I learned in the first thing I did, the 100K walk, was when I was walking past people, I would always – and Nick was the same because we walked together – we would always – be as upbeat and as happy and be like, hey, how you going? <laughs> and just seeing that like crush people, be like, oh, I don't feel that good. Was I was like, there's something about when you are not necessarily versing someone, but when you you kind of pass someone like that, there's this weird transition of energy where you can yeah. like, take a bit of theirs. You get an extra ten percent on race day because like yeah. you're overtaking people hundred percent. So not having that in the times when the paddle got tough was was challenging i was i mean i had the guys on the boat who were you know yelling their 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 support but that doesn't really compare and it's you know i there were definitely times in that paddle where 
there was a consideration of if I was A, going to make it, or B, was like mentally capable of it. Because it was – the reason it was so challenging is because you can't really train for it in Australia. The way that the water moves, the depth of the channel, just the, so, the sheer size of it, there's just nothing that I did over here that emulated that and there's nothing that I could do. So you're being faced with not only this incredible physical challenge and this task, but – you're in a new environment, something you haven't experienced before and you're kind of working things out on the fly and then something like your nutrition fails you, which is what happened to me, and you're really – your back's up against the wall at that stage and it's hard telling yourself to get through it. And for me, the thing that helped was really reflecting on what had got me through things like – things I'd been through in the past, like the attack and those other physical challenges I've been through, reflecting on what I'd – I'd lent on in the past and knowing that it has worked before. And there is that, again, we go back to the word hope, that bit of hope. And there was also a bit of stubbornness on my past, on my part as well, because I knew that I had dragged so many people into doing it that I was like, I can't not finish it in front of all these people. I just decided at some stage, I was like, I don't care how long it's going to take. I just want to finish. And when I did that and was just focusing on one stroke after the other, then it just became like 15 minutes at a time. Okay, you've done another 15 minutes and, and just kind of breaking it down bit by bit. That was almost like taking the step every single day when I was going through my recovery. So when I was breaking it down like that and going one bit at a time, I got there eventually. It just was a lot harder and a lot more challenging than what I would have liked. And, and one thing that really stood out as well was progress and how important the progress was. You spoke about... Each time you get a little bit closer to the final destination and they're saying, aim at this, like aim at the middle of the mountain uh, and then aim here and aim there. And each time you'd have a new goal, it would give you that next little bit of energy to, and, and, and motivation to, to, to keep pushing and to keep going and to keep digging deep. And it reflected like I'm sure in a perfectly parallel way almost to exactly your recovery. How important is progress and setting goals for yourself don't like it like you said it doesn't have to be massive goals but how important is setting that that vision and having goals along the way that you can work towards and how much does that keep you going yeah well having a big ambitious goal is is great but knowing that you're not going to achieve it in one step is also very important so you do need those smaller goals along the way so the whole i'm not sure how much like trail walking or trail running you've done but when you're going up a mountain never look at the top because what will happen is you'll get over the top and it'll be like a false peak sort of situation <laughs> and there'll be another top after that. Like if we're looking at the top rather than the step that's in front of us, we can get distracted. And not only does it take away from the quality of the step that's in front of you, but mentally it just gets draining. And that was the case in the recovery where it was, yeah, I had the surfing, but I had all these things in order to get me there. Same in the paddle, like you said. The good thing about the paddle is you can't actually see the finish line. So that's where having those goals that you're aiming towards, there's no real line that you reach where you're like, okay, new goal. It's just like at this stage we're like, okay, now we aim for this, now we aim for that. So having those goals along the way are really important to have because it's something that's achievable and not only that, but when you do get to tick off one of those little goals, that's that little boost that you need to help you get to the next one. You're like, okay, I'll feel the same after I get to the next one. It's like you're this this new little bit of life and energy that you get as you tick off each of these goals. And so I always think not necessarily even with a big challenge like that, but just a to-do list during the day. 
putting something simple on that just so you get that small bit of progress is is something that we should all really be doing. I mean, everyone has to-do lists, right? <laughs> Things that you're trying to get done. But if you have something simple you know, that you know is pretty achievable that can just give you that bit of momentum because that's the thing. Like when you get that progress, you can just build on that with confidence and hope and, and that momentum leads to more momentum to help you get to the next goal. That that there is unstoppable after a while. And, and is that how you use this philosophy with all aspects of your life now in terms of goal setting and making progress moving forward? Essentially. I, I obviously have, you know, an overarching purpose that, you know, kind of guides my reasoning for getting out of bed in the morning. And that's not something that I can necessarily achieve. Like for me, that is just to use my story to help other people. And, you know, you can help other people in a number of different ways, but it's not like I help one person and that's done. It's just something that I consistently want to be doing. But there's a lot of things that I put in place to help me do that. Doing the film was a massive one, but that was a three-year journey to try to get that film out there. And there's so many checkpoints along the way. It's, you know, it started off with the five-minute video, the 20-minute video, building up to these different levels. And then it's like knocking off each little interview, knowing you're adding a little bit more to the production. But I think when I look at these goals that I've set over time, one of the most important things that I do now is to stop and, and reflect on where I am. Because what I realized is that if we're so focused on this one goal, that our environment can change that completely, like the inputs and what we're dealing with can affect how we actually get there. So if we have, I mean, for, for example, I suppose I'll use a, a real world example, something that's actually happened to me. So I was working with a mental health company a couple of years ago, which was how my speaking really started. And mental health is a really important thing that I love to work on and something that is still a big part of what I want to do and what I want to put out in the world. But I got to a point where when I started with the film, so much of my energy had to go into that that I could no longer service this other goal of mine which was to to help build mental health programs to empower other people within the community to support others and I got to a point where I needed to kind of put that on the shelf and say in order to do that I need to do the film first and to to get that done so it's not to say I've failed at that but just the environment around me changed that I needed to reassess my goals and change where I was aiming for and, and that's something that I try and do now once I realize that and that it's not failing it's just recalibrating once I realized that I was like okay I need to actually mindfully set myself points in time where I sit back and say if I have a goal for this year where am I now have things changed am I still heading in that right direction or have other things popped up that have kind of altered the course a little bit and that's been one of the big things that has helped me today kind of keep moving forward and the goals that I'm working on now they might be different in three months time I mean the next time I actually reflect on it will be in a couple of weeks so I can let you know how that goes but you'd be surprised how much changes in three months and you know you look at what you've been able to do in the last couple of years building a business or even starting the podcast and you know the reasons for why you start it might change but so much can can be changed within our environment so we kind of need to to stay updated with how we're interacting with that and I think that's a really important part of setting goals as well is to to be flexible and know that we we can change what we're heading towards mental health is something that I, I ask a lot of people about but it, it I think it's a different question or maybe that's just me thinking that but like how I want to know currently now that you've you've gone through so many big challenges 
in your day-to-day life, what, what's your relationship to mental health now? I imagine you've got a lot of skills and that resilience that you've built from what you've gone through. But day-to-day when life's become now normal and, you, and not, not normal, but no, it's not focused on recovery and you're not having to put all your energy into this one clear goal to be able to get back to where I can do the things I need to do to live a life. How do you then live in that and, and, and relate to your mental health now that you've kind of got come out the other side of all those big challenges? I guess seeing it at its worst is a challenge. Like when you're going through a struggle, that's when a lot of people kind of pay attention to it. Um, When you think about mental health, there's a lot of different analogies people use for it as far as how to visualise it. But if you think about it a bit like a car, usually a lot of people will take the car to get fixed when it's broken. And that's to say that we should only really look at our mental health when we're going through a struggle, but that's not the case. Uh, we, we need to look at it every single day because there's, there's things that happen every single day that will either improve or, or deteriorate our mental health and it, it moves up and down depending on how you're going every single minute of every single day. So when it comes to the way that we manage it, it's more like you should be servicing it. You need to put things in place regularly to help you be the best that you can and to be proactive with it because that's one of the biggest things. We're, we're really reactive as, as human beings and... I guess the fact that people do service their car and the fact that they do put fuel in it and top it up with oil and, and clean it and things like that is, is hope that people can actually take proactive steps with their mental health. A big part of it is just, you know, and this has come a long way in, in the last decade or so, but make it front of mind for a lot of people. I know through the work I have done in the mental health space, knowing how companies and how people approach it has changed so much in the last decade compared to how it was approached like 30, 40 years ago. Like I'd speak to guys who've been working at the steelworks for the last you know, 40 years and they're like, As, it wouldn't even be spoken back then, but now it's becoming more and more common. People are knowing that it's not only impacting the individual, but can, it can impact like a workforce, for example, or a team um, or a community as well is, is something that we need to pay attention to. But for... For me, going through what I've been through, I've developed a lot of skills for myself, whether it be through the way that I cope or the supports that are around me. Knowing what is there and using it proactively is one of the best things that I can, I can say because the beauty of being proactive is if you do go through a struggle, you're already doing the positive things that are going to be good for you. Rather than going through a struggle, getting to a point where you do feel lost and you feel alone and then having to start something there, it's really difficult to take that first step. It's not impossible. But if we're already doing that stuff proactively and knowing what works for us, that is the best thing that we can do for our mental health. And to be the best version of ourselves and to do the things that we want to do in life, that has to take priority. So when people look at my story and my recovery going back to the attack, a lot of people say it's a story of resilience, which is true. But a lot of people think resilience is going through the physical recovery and getting back to that point of surfing again. But I wouldn't have been able to take the first step on that journey if I didn't look at my mental health first. So just acknowledging the importance of of that has been a huge thing for me and a big reason for why I do want to do more in that space and what got me into it in the first place. Yeah, and massive, massive pillar. And and I think if we can do those things for ourselves like we do, service our car, put air air, air in the tyres, you know, fill it up with fuel, change the oil, all that sort of stuff, we can find out those things and do them for ourselves matched with like you were just speaking about prior the recalibration checking in with yourself where are you now what were your goals six months ago a year ago three months ago even how do I feel about that now is that still exactly where I want to be have things changed and just being able to adjust and 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 
think of yourself in that more of a, a flexible but kind way I think is really important. But we'll start to wrap up. I want to ask you after after everything that you've you've gone through and you've experienced, if I just had to say right now, like what's what feels right to you now when I say what's your message to the world? Like what 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 have you taken from everything you've gone through? What's what's that message? There's it is difficult to sum up in in one like there's a lot of things that I would love to be the message but I guess overall when I look around and I see people that I talk to and I see audience that that I speak to and I get messages from people that watch the doco and things like that I think one of the things that I'm very proud of which I guess probably speaks to the message is that people always say you've somehow made something seem so unrelatable in a shark attack, so relatable. Because I think at the, at the base, at the core of everything, we're all humans, right? And humans are all very similar and the way in which we go through life, yeah, our experiences are different. But one thing that we'll all go through that is universal is struggle. Whether that be a shark attack, whether that be something in our personal life or a relationship or it's a business struggle or anything, struggle is just part of going through life and we can't avoid it which is unfortunate but when you look at struggles and this is why I say the big message is probably about not it's not about what happens to you but about how you respond is just acknowledging that no matter how big or small that struggle is you do always have the option to respond to it in a positive way and it might not seem like it in that moment but when you do get a chance to gain some perspective on either what you did right or what you didn't do right then I think we can take a lot more into whatever that struggle is next because unfortunately again there's always going to be more hurdles there's going to be more speed bumps that we face in life and if we can learn from our own experiences and know that we are all resilient because that's another thing I think a lot of people they're like you're inspiring because you are resilient I'm like but everyone's resilient like everyone's been through their own challenges and they've come out the other side of it but a big part of that is just connecting with that resilience within the individual to use themselves as that inspiration for next time. Like I, I'm regular. Like I'm just a regular person that something really irregular has happened to and I have always struggled with the relationship of being called inspiring but I can see why people approach that because a lot of people think that they're just a regular person, they don't have this incredible story and I think the same thing about myself. But if people can draw on their own experiences and use themselves as that inspiration, then I think that is is key. So... I don't know if that really answers your question, but I guess at the end of the day, my message that I would love for people to, to take away is just to look, look at themselves and to acknowledge what you've been through and to know that you are resilient, that you're inspiring as well. Dude, that is so, so powerful. And it did answer the question 100%. I've got one last question for you. What's next? You said you want to always have these big goals. Have you planned the next one? I don't know if it's public knowledge yet but what have you what's what's these goals you've set for yourself so this is how i get myself in trouble i always say them on the podcast <laughs> and things like that um i the next physical challenge that i have is i'm running a 50k trail in july which i'm starting to train for very soon so that's the next thing i'm i'm working towards something to just keep me fit and keep me healthy the the bigger goals for me at the moment are just a big one that I was able to tick off was the film um I want to keep keep doing what I've been doing as far as the speaking goes as far as trying to help people um sharing the story and trying to get a bit more comfortable with that as 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 things go along and you know I 
I've definitely come a long way from where I was when I first started you know, sharing the story and, and realizing that there was something there to share and that people would find it interesting and that it could help other people. But at the end of the day, if I can look back in, in five years' time and know I've just helped one person, then it's, it's all been worth it. And that's, that's kind of what I go by. I love it. And um, for anyone that, that is really interested, trust me, the film is awesome. So it's attack- Attacking Life, available on Stan. Uh, is it available anywhere outside of Australia at the moment? Or? So it's we're starting our international um, distribution mid-April. It'll be launched at MIP TV through our international distributor. And yep. um, so, yeah, we'll we'll hopefully have some info on that as soon as, as that kind of goes live. But that'll be – if anyone – is international and wants to, to keep updated, we'll, we'll put all the things on our Instagrams, just Attacking Life Film if you, you want to be updated. Yeah, so the Attacking Life Film on Instagram, yourself. Brett Cannellan on Instagram is the, the main one we go by. <laughs> or Shark Boy. Or Shark Boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, I can't thank you enough. It is a privilege, like you said, I know a lot of people are interested, but it's a privilege to be able to hear not just that incident and what happened that day, but more importantly, what you've been able to, to, to realise and build upon from that moment and obviously I'm excited to watch what you do from here. It's an extremely inspiring story, um, whether or not that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable or not, but uh, thanks for sharing it again and thanks for giving us your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, man. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favour, do me a favour, do your friends a favour and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.